Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Hazel. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Thank you, Hazel, for reading. Thank you, Tori, for leading us in singing. You know, they say, I've said this before, but they say that worship songs and music is theology that people actually remember. I thought that was pretty funny. It's uh, really uh, humbling for me because that means you won't remember what I say, but you will remember the words to what the song was. And uh, if, we, if we remember nothing else than today that he is worthy of it all, then I am, I am content because that is, that is so true. So thank you again for leading us in worship. Let's, uh, if you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been learning what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. We're in the first movement of Matthew, finishing up chapter five today. Uh, If you wanna know what life in heaven looks like, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you wanna know the character of a disciple, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what the life of a disciple looks like, read the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been noting, uh, especially in chapter five, that the life of a disciple is constantly moving from sin management to greater righteousness. We are noting that the life of a disciple, and this, is, this will be on the screen as well, this little slide, life of a disciple is moving from mere sin management into greater righteousness. A lot of times, if we're not intentional with our discipleship, we'll just be focusing on what not to do. Okay, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Manage the sin, manage the sin. Instead, God has, and Jesus has, and the Sermon on the Mount have, something so much greater for us than that. We don't want to just not like be mean. We want to be filled with love. We don't want, just want to not lust. We want to be filled with pure thoughts. And that's what we've been looking at uh, the last couple weeks. And we, um, it, people do well by tracking progress in their lives, right? Like when you're a little kid, you track how your progress in height, right? Like when you're a little kid, you go to that one wall or that inside of the closet and you put a pencil on your head and you're like, I'm finally, I'm finally growing up. I'm catching up. We like to track progress, right? We track progress in schooling, education, go from one grade to the next grade, 
to the next grade and you have a little ceremony after one grade and you have a little ceremony to start the next grade. We track progress in work. How did I do this quarter? How did I do last quarter? Where do I want to go? Did I did not do good this quarter. I, you know, did great. We have annual reviews quarterly, depending on where you work. You know, you have different reviews. We'd like to track progress. We like to track growth. And we actually thrive as humans. We like thrive by doing that. Like, okay, how am I growing? How am I progressing? Am I growing? Am I progressing? So I have a question for you today. And the question is, how do we know if we're growing spiritually? How do we track our spiritual growth? We track growth in every other aspect of life. I'm growing in this way. I'm growing in this way. I'm growing in this way. How do we track our spiritual progress, our spiritual growth? Because uh, we, we tr- sometimes you might think, you know, I track my spiritual growth by how much money I'm giving to the church, right? Like at first I was giving this, but now I'm giving this. Sometimes we track spiritual growth by how busy we are in church. Well, if I'm just really busy with church and I just like do more things for church, then I'll, I'll grow. And uh, that's always funny because, you know, you can, you see the person who's like been in church for, for like forever and you're like, hey, that's not really, it's not really working out for you there. You're not really like changing into a person who's growing. Like busyness does not equate to holiness is what I'm saying. Sometimes we track growth by uh, how right we are theologically right? Well, I know this now. I believe this. I I don't believe this. All of those are good things to track, right? But that's not like the way that we track our spiritual growth or we know if we are growing spiritually. So how do we know we're growing spiritually? How do we know we're growing into greater righteousness? And it's just one word, love. Love. How do you know if you're growing spiritually? How much are you growing in love of God and love of others? The God who we serve is a God of love. So when we become like him, we obviously become more what? We become more loving. We're gonna get to what love means in a second, but here's some proof, and these texts are gonna be on the screen for you as well. Romans 13, nine to 10 says this. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, this is what Paul says, is the fulfillment of the law. The next one is 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which says this. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is faith. Nope. But the greatest of these is hope. Nope. The greatest of these is love. 1 John 4, 7, 3. By the way, I had 10 texts up there, but Tom and Nate vetoed it, and they said, don't put 10 passages up there, just put three up there. So you're welcome. Uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says this. Dear friends, let us what to one another? Let us love one another, because why? Love is from God. Everybody who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then this is the scary part. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So how do we know if we're growing spiritually? Are we becoming a person of love who loves God and loves others? So now we have to define love, right? Because like love is just the most tired word in English because I can love pizza and my wife. And it's like, I hope those two things are different, right? Because like that's just, it's a tired word. And so we only have one word in English. Most languages have like multiple words. Um, But we're going to just focus on two things of what love is not first. Okay, so first, here's what love is not. Love is not tolerance. Love is not tolerance. We believe this. Because if you see a situation where there is two people in a relationship, whether they're dating or just friends or married or whatever, and one is abusive, either mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, if we love that person, 
We are going to stop. We're not just going to tolerate it. Well, I guess like that's, that's love and I have to be loving so I can't say anything. No. Love is stepping into that moment and saying this is not okay. This needs to change. When a coworker comes into work and just starts bad-mouthing the boss, love is not just saying, well, okay, are you just going to say that or she's just going to say that so I guess I just have to let it happen. Love is changing the subject. When someone you love, a child, a friend, or a spouse, or, a, or anybody else, is doing something sinful, detrimental to themselves or to others, love is not just resigning and saying, well, that's just who they are. I can't do anything about it. Love is not tolerance. Now, some of you guys are excited, like, yeah, love is confrontational. It's not mean either, so don't get too excited about that. <clears throat> um, love is entering in, we're going to see this in a second, Matthew chapter 5. Love is entering in with nonviolence and non-retaliation and breaking the chain of evil in its tracks. You cannot do that by just letting things happen. That is not love. Second, love is not something that happens to you. I call this the Hollywood love. I fell in love. Did it hurt? Like, why'd you, where, why did, like, you fell? Love is not something that happens to you, right? This is the constant theme of our world is like, well, I, it, it happened to me. Well, I fell in love, and therefore I fell out of love, and therefore I'm going to break this relationship and this promise that I made, all this stuff. It's not tolerance, and love does not, it's not something that happens to you. So what is biblical love? And it, this is what biblical love is. Biblical love, love, excuse me, is willing the good of another, Biblical love is willing the good of another. Notice, it's not wishing the good of another. I can wish somebody good, but not actually do anything about it. Well, I wish them good, but my hands are, you know, clean. I'm not, I'm not diving into that situation. No, love is willing the good of another. In Philippians, we talked over and over about how love is putting the needs of others above the needs of the self. It's not just looking out for our own interests, but also to the interests of another. Love is intentionally, proactively, decisively doing things in your life for the good of another at the expense of yourself sometimes. That's biblical love. It can come with emotion. It can come with something that happens to you. It can come with love, like with the feeling, but primarily love is putting the needs of other above the needs of yourself and willing the good of another. So what does this look like? Two examples. They're gonna be on the screen as well, and this is where we dive into the text for today. Two examples. How do we love? Well, the first is we refuse to retaliate. We refuse to retaliate. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 33. Nope. Chapter 5, verse 38. Sorry, that was last week's. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, 38. Jesus is in the fifth of six examples of greater righteousness, and he says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, real quick, this is Jesus' fifth example on greater righteousness, what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And we might hear this quote, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, and we might think, well, that's really barbaric. Like, that's like an eye for an eye. That's pretty, you know, harsh. But this law, first of all, was used and made only for the judges in court. So this law, and if you go back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where this law is used, it was only used for the judges in court. It was not used for the individual. So people later took it to be like, oh, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That means I can take your eye or whatever. That's not what it meant. It was only for the judges and it was actually supposed to create justice so that there wasn't any like over punishments. Like I steal your pencil, you burn my house down. Like th the whole point of this law was to be like, okay, if I steal your pencil, just 
just give it back rather than I'm gonna burn your house down, right? So the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was actually supposed to contain justice. And it was supposed to bring justice. Hundreds of years went by and eventually this just became like an individual thing. Well, my eye for my eye, my tooth for my tooth, I'm gonna be the one that's taking justice into my own hands. It was misinterpreted from its original intent. So Jesus says, you've heard, an eye for eye for tooth for tooth. Verse 39, he goes on. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Okay, let's stop there. Don't resist an evildoer. This word resist is more like retaliate against or push back against. And notice what it says. Don't push back or retaliate against an evildoer. Somebody who does evil, which means, period, no matter what, that person is wrong. And you're probably right. And if they talk bad about you, if they humiliate you, if they try to take advantage of you, and they're wrong, and you're right, Jesus says what? Don't retaliate. Don't. Do not resist. They're wrong, you're right. We all know that. He's an evildoer. This person's an evildoer. And Jesus says what love is, is not retaliating, not putting yourself against that person. He goes on, on the contrary, opposite end of the spectrum, if anybody slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Verse 40, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. 42, if, uh, give to the one who asks of you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus gives four examples, slapping on the cheek, going the extra mile, or suing you, going the extra mile, and giving to the one who asks of you. Let's take these in succession. If anybody slaps you on your right cheek, now, when it comes to slapping on your right cheek, Jesus doesn't mean this literally, okay? A few weeks ago, we, uh, we were in youth group, and we were going over this passage, and um, I won't give anybody's initials because I don't want to embarrass them, but two people, Towns and Mojave Vasquez, <laughs> <coughs> decided to practice this. And we're talking about practices and practicing the way of Jesus, all this stuff. And uh, at the end of the uh, little lesson thing, one of them, shorter, smaller, younger Mojave, walks up to the other one, Towns, and just slaps him right across the cheek. And it happened so fast that I was, I didn't, I was like, I kind of saw it coming, but I was like, surely he's not going to slap him on the cheek. And he did. And Towns, you know, backed up and Mojave goes, I was just trying to practice. I was just taking it seriously. I was just seeing if he would retaliate. I love the uh, application, but maybe not in this, in this instance. What Jesus is saying is, is slap, in this context, slapping somebody on the cheek was a humiliating thing. In this culture, it was an honor-shame culture. So if you were shamed publicly, you were done. Like you were, like your family would get rid of you, you'd lose your job, everything. And slapping somebody in general was shameful, but slapping them on the right cheek was even more shameful. Think about this. If you're, most people are right-handed. If you're right-handed and you slap somebody, what cheek did you hit? You hit their left cheek. So if you, in order to hit their right cheek, Jesus says, if anybody slaps you on your right cheek, you have to do what? You have to do a backhanded slap. That was illegal in the first century because it was so degradating to your character. It was the most shameful insult that you could give to somebody. It wasn't necessarily about actually like physically harming somebody. It was saying, if you are shamed to the nth degree and somebody just humiliates you and you're done, offer them yourself 
even more. We have these two responses, fight or flight, right? Jesus is saying neither of those. It's, it's not roll over. It's not pacifism. It's not just like, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to defend my. It's not fighting either. It's not saying I'm going to punch you back. It's saying understand that people often have reasons. They have hurt themselves, and our job is not to be the judge. Our job is not to take vengeance in our own hands, but leave it to God and say, here's, here's my other cheek as well. Verse 40, if anybody wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Your coat as a first century Jew was your blanket that you slept with at night. It was your covering when the weather was bad. It was everything. Again, it was actually illegal to sue somebody's, like your coat was off limits to be sued for because it was like, well, you're gonna die if you don't have your coat. And Jesus is saying, if somebody wants your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Give them everything because by doing so you actually might just stop the pattern and break the chain of evil right in its tracks verse 41 if anybody forces you to go one mile go with him too what what does this mean in uh first century palestine who's their uh big bad empire above them rome right a roman soldier a roman anybody really could at any time if they were just tired of carrying their um, armor if they were tired of carrying their luggage they could grab a Jewish person and force them. By law, they had to go a mile with them, no matter what. You might remember when Jesus was carrying his cross, eventually he couldn't carry it anymore and they made uh, Simon of Cyrene carry Jesus' cross for him. That's an example of this. Simon of Cyrene had no choice to carry Jesus' cross. The Roman soldier said, you, carry it a mile, and he did. And what Jesus is saying is like, one mile, yeah, that's, that's fine. Go farther. Don't just roll over. Don't fight back and say, no, I'm sticking it to the man, but rather love them selflessly. See what they need and over and over and over again, love them. If anybody forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Verse 42, give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I read a few commentaries and listened to a few sermons where people would do the, I call it the yeah, but theology. And they would do that with this. Well, yeah, but, you know, Jesus didn't actually mean that. I'm not so sure. If somebody asks you of something, give it. If somebody wants to borrow you, borrow from you, don't turn them away. If somebody is an evildoer and approaches you with malintent and humiliates you, wants to take advantage of you, what is the way of Jesus here? Don't resist them. Don't retaliate. Refuse to retaliate. What's another example of biblical love? Another example of biblical love is this, loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's pause right there. Some of you guys might have quotes around your verse. Um, some of you guys might all capital letters in your verse on 43 or bold or whatever. Love your neighbor is a command from the Old Testament. Hate your enemy is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. You go back, look, I, I did, because I didn't believe some of the commentators, and I didn't find it. Hate your enemy is not in the law. So what, what, what's going on here? 
in, in the law, the, there are multiple, multiple examples of love your enemy, love your enemy, love, or I'm sorry, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Like, in fact, don't even uh, harvest all of your crops. Leave like a little bit of crops on the outside so that your neighbor, if they come by, they can like pick food if they're poor and they can like feed themselves and they can live and all this stuff. Love your neighbor over and over and over again. Well, as Israel was conquered and then returned and then conquered by Assyria and then conquered by Babylon and then conquered by Greece and then conquered by Rome, neighbor became exclusively a fellow Israelite. So they interpreted that ver- love your neighbor as Okay, my neighbor is only my fellow Israelite. If you're a Babylonian, nope. If you're an Egyptian, nope. If you're a Roman person, nope. You are my enemy. So they eventually, over time, they interpreted this, okay, well, if I have to love my neighbor, I therefore need to hate my enemy because, you know, we are the children of God. We are are the people of God. We are Israel. So love your neighbor and hate your enemy was a common, common, even though hate your enemy was not in the Old Testament, it was a common interpretation of this. So what does Jesus say? Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What is Jesus saying here? Love is when enemies who persecute Christians and hate God, who are enemies of God, love is that is that you pray for them, you do good to them, you greet them, you love them, your enemy. I'm pretty sure a person or a name or relationship came up in your mind when you heard the word enemy. When was the last time you prayed for them? How do you love them? Pray for them. How do you love your enemy? Pray for them willing the good of another. Don't pray that they, you know, get hit by a car or something. Pray for their good. Why? This is the only time Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a reason for why we should do this. Verse 45. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you remember one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers, so they will be called children of God. When you love your enemies, you become God's child. Why? For he, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. when you live in an agrarian society in first century Israel, farming is everything, and you have a neighbor that takes advantage of you and he cheats the system and he takes money and sometimes he steals some of your crops and all this stuff, does the sun rise on him or her? Yes. When it rains, does it only rain on the righteous people and then all the unrighteous people, their crops die? No, obviously not. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what otherwise. But God's love is so others focus and it is such a radical example of enemy love that no matter what every single day the sun rises on the good and on the evil you ever wonder why sometimes evil people seem to or like unrighteous people seem to like win in life they get the promotion they get the status they get the company they they do what they're winning and what does god do does god say okay well you know They're unrighteous, so now I'm just gonna take it all from them. No, the sun still rises on them. God provides for them. And if that's how God provides for people, what should God's people look like? That. 
enemy love, refusing to retaliate, willing and praying for the good of somebody else, even at your own expense sometimes. He keeps going. For if you love, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Jesus gives two examples of the worst types of people in this context. Tax collectors who were like sellouts and didn't like their own kind. And Gentiles, or another translation is pagans, people who hate God. And his point is, those people are still friends. They love the people that love themselves. Think of like the worst group of people you can think of, whether it's like a terrorist group or whether it's like a, a, just a different, you know, sports team. They're not the worst group of people, but you know what I'm saying? Like they, they love their own kind. It's human nature and it's natural to love your own kind. But God is saying that his love is breaking out of that stereotype. I just love those who love me. What, what's, what good is that? God's love is breaking out and loving those who don't love you. Seeking the good of those who have the different views that you do, who look differently, who talk differently, who vote differently, who act differently. Jesus is saying, those people, love them. Pray for them. Will the good of them. Don't even the Gentiles do the same. And then we get to verse 48. It says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a tall order. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Last week I asked this question, is the Sermon on the Mount possible? And the answer was abundantly and clearly yes. Then you get to this, pers- this verse and you're like, well, but is it though? We're gonna talk about this. The word perfect in our understanding, in our English today, is like this idea of like um, moral flawlessness. Like it's just like absolutely flawless. Like there's no blemish in it at all. That's not actually what the, it used to mean. The word perfect didn't used to mean that. And it's also not actually what the Greek word behind it is. The Greek word behind this is the word telos, telos, T-E-L-O-S or T-E-L-E-O-S. And we have this, uh, we have, you know, sometimes we have the ethos of the conversation or the pathos of the conversation or the telos of the conversation. What it means, it means the end or the goal of something. Jesus says, be telos, which In other words, be complete, be whole, as your heavenly Father is complete or whole. What Jesus does not mean is be morally flawless and above, like just be, just be me, just be Jesus, right? Jesus does not mean that. What he means is be complete or whole. How do you become a complete or a whole person? Love, enemy love, refusing to retaliate, letting God handle situations. So if you put it like that way, be whole, be complete, be filled as your heavenly father is whole, is complete, is filled. Is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. When these six examples of greater righteousness can so transform us, we have the opportunity and the ability to become whole people or as the Beatitudes say, pure in heart for we will see God. We have the ability to become children of God based on how we love others. We become peacemakers. We don't just love those who love us. We go out of our way to selflessly will the good of another person. We refuse to retaliate. We don't talk back. And in fact, we do the opposite. 
we figure out what it is that they need most and we enter into that and we serve that. We don't just say, well, I'm done. Like that, you, you, we are so good. We have created a repertoire of ways that we ignore others and re- seek revenge in our words and our actions and our motives. You give a bad look to me, I'm never talking to you again. You make fun of something that I care about, well, there goes our relationship. We have so trained ourselves to retaliate and to seek revenge. And Paul says in Romans 12, do not seek revenge. He says, leave it to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And instead, he says at the end of Romans 12, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If there's a fire, you know how you make it worse? Add more fire to it. If somebody's angry with you, somebody says something against you, somebody humiliates you, you know how to make it worse? Retaliate. Add fire to it. But we have the opportunity to, in a non-violent, non-resistant way, stop evil in its tracks by loving our enemies. This is what scholar uh, Frederick Bruner says this. He says, Christian maturity is whole-souled commitment, for Jesus' sake, to protecting other people. Christian maturity is looking at everyone we meet and saying, at least to oneself, I will never, God helping me, do anything to hurt you, either by angrily lashing out at you, lustfully sidling up to you, faithlessly slipping away from you, verbally oiling you up, protectively hitting you back, or even justifiably disliking you. You notice something about those six examples? You have heard that it says do not murder, but I say don't be angry. Don't commit adultery, but I say don't lust. Do not commit uh, divorce. Do not divorce. It's not God's ideal. Be truth tellers. Don't break your oaths. Don't retaliate, but give to the one who asks. And finally, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A few examples of this. This is impossible. This doesn't work. This is unrealistic. A few examples. Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights movement in the 60s. Non, for all his flaws, non-violent resistance. Did he resist evil? Yes. How did he do it? With good. The Velvet Revolution in the Catholic Philippines, a couple decades ago. Silent, non-violent resistance against evil. The Quiet Revolution of the Lutheran Leipzig, which arguably brought down Eastern Germany's communism. These are examples throughout history of people saying, I'm gonna take Jesus seriously. And there's evil in this world, and we know it. There's evil nationally, internationally. There's evil individually in my own relationships. And do you know how you wanna overcome that? Love. Not tolerance, not just rolling over, confronting evil in its tracks with goodness with care, with putting the other person's needs above your own. So again, I ask you, how do you know, how do we know if we're growing spiritually? Are you becoming this person? Are you becoming a person of love? Are you becoming a person that the Sermon on the Mount is true of? Are you becoming a non-violent, selfless, giving person? Are you becoming a person who no matter what, no matter who they're talking to or interacting with, you love them? 
I'm talking about the person you'll never see again. It's easy to not love those people. I'm also talking about the people that you see all the time. It's easy to not love those people. Every single person you interact with. Do you view them as an image bearer? Do you take Jesus seriously? Are you becoming a person who is filled with the fullness of God? Essentially, are you becoming a person living in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the prime example of this? We have a lot of examples in our culture, in our world, in our history. Who is the ultimate example? Jesus himself. In this we know love. God loved us. He sent his son to die for us. Where do we see love? The cross. While we were enemies of God, Christ did what? He died for us. Which means what? While people are enemies of, what, of us, what should we do? Die for them. Not retaliate, but love them. Pray for them. So I can think of no better way that, to end than to end with communion. Because what do we do at communion every single week? We intentionally remind ourselves of the cross. What happened on the cross? Selfless love. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.